0: So I want to welcome everyone to the uh, inaugural uh, CMS colloquium this year. It's also part of another uh, series, which is the Cognitive Dimensions of Media series. Uh, uh, and we're really excited to have uh, Francis Steen here from UCLA, uh, Associate Professor of Communication Studies there. He does fascinating work regarding the news. Uh, he's done a lot of work regarding uh, cognition of aesthetics, looking at online gaming, print culture, and a lot more And so, first, I can say just a little bit about this series, which is Cognitive Dimensions of Media. So, Cognitive Dimensions of Media looks at a particular point of view related to cognition. Of course, cognition is a kind of overloaded term, it could mean anything from neuroscience related ideas to cognitive film theory. And so, we can ask what do we mean by cognitive dimensions of media here? Well, we're interested in the kind of cognition of the imagination. So this is cognition that produces ideology, metaphor, conceptual thinking, blends of conceptual ideas. And in particular here, we're interested in the kind of discourse that produces ideology and uh, perception and persuasion within the evening news, and not only the kind of linguistic uh, print discourse, but, is, but also looking at the cognition of imagery in the evening news, how it produces bias, how it produces uh, consensus, a, a, and a lot more. So uh, we're really honored to have uh, Francis Steen here to start off the series. We have uh, two other uh, speakers, George Lakoff and Mark Turner, later on Mark Turner is a collaborator uh, of uh, Francis Steen's, and so it'll be a kind of a bookend for the lecture series, and so have multiple dimensions of uh, the related topic of media and cognition. So uh, please join me in wel- in welcoming uh, Francis Steen.
1: All right, thank you. It's a pleasure and an honor to uh, come here and um, have a chance to have a colloquium with you. With you. Um, 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 I'll particularly look at um, um, how um, television recruits uh, human cognitive capacities and uh, how um, uh, these, uh, the, the ways in which these uh, uh, powerful information processing capacities of uh, individual minds are recruited and mediated through television have powerful social effects. Uh, This is uh, a developing field in the sense that uh, if you look at the history of uh, media studies, almost all of it has been done with text, much of it with newspapers. And uh, this is in part because uh, uh, text is tractable. You can find uh, big uh, 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 corpora of uh, text. It's uh, easily searchable. Um, It's not really because people think that uh, images don't matter right? Uh, Television has been the main form of uh, uh, the the, the public sphere for a couple of generations, right? So we're starting this, um, what we call the Red Hand Lab, uh, a a global uh, uh, team for um, a distributed uh, research team for uh, taking care of uh, these multiple levels of uh, work that needs to be accomplished to create a good data set and to work systematically with that data set. And that goes all the way from uh, the acquisition, data enhancement, uh, data mining research. There's a whole series of hard problems in computer vision and joint image text mining and uh, um, communication research of the type that I'll mainly be talking about today, Uh, but also the development of suitable interfaces of engagement with communities uh, and uh, uh, publication platforms. So um, as technology is making uh, multimodal research possible, it is in some sense catching up with the capacities of the human mind, which has been multimodal all along. Human communication has always been multimodal. We've attempted to kind of squeeze that into the very narrow channel of speech uh, where we are going to miss a lot of what's really happening. Um, I'll uh, say a little bit about the the collection first uh, uh, and then I'll mainly focus on uh, causal reasoning uh, and uh, case study uh, from Norway over the past year or so uh, and um, a- and then basically open it up uh, uh, for discussion. I'll say a little bit about interface developments but I don't think I'll have really time to go into a lot of demos on that. <coughs> um, very quickly on the archive, um, it started out uh, in the Watergate days. Sorry, I'm go- going a bit, a bit too fast here. Let me just give you a tiny moment to read it. So um, uh, we started out, uh, a senior colleague of mine started out during the Watergate hearings to just record. And he recorded to tape. It was expensive at the time. I mean, you know, even tape was cutting-edge technology at the time, right? And ended up with a vast uh, collection of uh, very hard-to-search uh, materials, so a, a, a gold mine, uh, but very hard to access. And uh, when I came in um, 2000, and I actually started at UCLA in 2001. But after a while, we, uh, you know, I basically sort of uh, knew enough about computers to set up like a pilot project. So I thought, look, you know, I'll just do this, and my senior colleagues will run with it, right? But of course, they had no clue what I was doing, and I ended up being uh, responsible for the whole thing. So we've now captured about 200,000 programs, typically hour-long, about a billion words, uh, tens of millions of uh, frame grabs, and so on. Now, um, it's done digital recording, done in duplicate, automated quality assurance, both text and visual. We, cu- we capture the closed captioning uh, and... Um, um, uh, in you know index them with t- timestamps, right? And um, the incoming files are huge. So this is uh, digital television. They come in. It's uh, you know seven gigs uh, an hour. We compress them way down H. Two six four, pretty good quality. Try to keep the storage requirements uh, from exploding. Um, we do stream the whole thing. I'll, I'll give you. Maybe a little bit of a lot demo of the search instead of uh, showing you the slides. I think we're good online. We can do things like uh, this uh, pull up um, uh, this basically based on word counts by uh, network. Um, we can do um, regular expression searches. Um,
0: uh, Governor John Hickenlooper, he um, talked about the heroic efforts of the people who, who went into that theater to um, help out uh, after that gunman went in.
1: Basically, the, um, uh, the way the, the, the system works, if we take, let's say, we've, we've, we've just, um, so, so normally what we ingest is, uh, you know, from, the, from a cable signal. Uh, so we get mainstream news, we get uh, Democracy Now!, um, we actually download that from the web. Uh, we uh, uh, get uh, French news, a bunch of foreign news, about 10%. Uh, we also have a capture station in Denmark, setting up one in Spain, captured a bunch of stuff in Czech Republic and Norway, uh, pending agreements in Russia. So we're basically building slowly a global system. Um, the search engine... Let me just take you back to that. Uh, if I just do a search now... Here's what our current search engine looks like. So these are the different um, uh, networks that we capture. We've just uh, started ingesting campaign ads from YouTube, from the candidates' feeds. And we also just uh, figured out how to get the Google machine transcript downloaded. So we have that indexed. Uh, We've downloaded about two million words and about 4,000 campaign ads from the the past, past few years. And you can see which ones in the window there. So these are the individual candidates. So basically, it's a system that allows us to, you know, get new types of data fairly easily. The whole, the whole thing is sort of set up to, to ingest. And uh, we can search by, um, by date, right? So basically, here's date ranges, right? And uh, we can sort by, uh, by date, uh, by frequency, count, and so on, right? Universal time, local time. It's hard to keep track of time. And um, if we search, we come up with these thumbnails that we take out uh, every 10 seconds. Click on that, and the video budget actually also assumed the
2: same 706
1: cues to that location in the video, essentially, right? So it's quite powerful for uh, you know being able to access uh, vast amounts of what actually happens on television. Uh, So that's a research tool that hasn't really existed, certainly not been available to academia, and nothing like it even exists professionally for the range of channels that we monitor, right? Uh, Now, I might mention that uh, we're also working with Internet Archive, and they are doing some similar things, and they are, uh, yeah, so you're going to hear from them soon. Um, uh, I think that's maybe enough of a quick demo let me switch over to the more substance of things. So uh, this is an older version of what we have. We, also, we can also search by um, visually, visual browsing, browsing essentially, uh, where we uh, uh, use a kind of cover flow, uh, online cover flow implementation for rapidly going through uh, a visual summary, essentially. And um, again, so if you're interested in the details here, sorry. I, so I, what I chose... I'm, I'm, I'm going to skip some of these. Just uh, shows a bunch of stuff that we've done on. Um, and we have an um, um, NSF uh, project going with um, a computer vision team for visual parsing. Uh, so this is the uh, data mining part, right? I remember all these levels I outlined. Uh, it's hard. Uh, so this is uh, cutting-edge research. There are interestingly hard problems for several disciplines uh, in linguistics, in uh, computer science. Uh, we also uh, look at uh, psychological, um, you know, behavioral studies, uh, neuroscience studies, uh, and um, Um, multimodal study of human cognition uh, is a a large opening field, right? So much of early computer models of the mind assumed that the basic representational format of the mind was low dimensional, something like binary code, right? Um, There's uh, reason to believe that uh, that's not what's going on. The mind is actually natively processing high dimensional information uh, in uh, multimodal representations. Okay, so I'm going to switch to the main um, topic of the talk. This why do we have news? Why, why do they exist? What are they really doing, right? And um, uh, I'll approach this um, uh, from um, a kind of cognitive point of view where we don't immediately try to pin down, you know, what is biased and what is prejudiced or what is uh, um, uh, sort of... Uh, uh, blinkered in some way, right, uh, but just look at the news as a way of uh, thinking, and that says something about the power uh, that uh, people who have access to the to the news uh, then uh, you know power that that, that that they control essentially right now um, the news you, you think of the news in terms of um, a state space of um, of what is possible and what is valuable, so the news. Uh, take the individual events that take place in the world and they situate them within these types of state state spaces. And what I mean by this is that we have some some idea of, uh, you know, preferred outcomes, like where we would like society to go, what outcomes I'd like for myself, for my community, for the whole greater society, right? And then we have a whole series of sort of a possible, a possible set of events, right? Now, even what is possible is, in a sense, socially contingent in the sense that, you know, your own conception of what your society could produce is already a kind of uh, implicit, uh, you know, frame, if you like, right? We call it ideology, but it's a, it's, a, it's a way that we get used to thinking what our society could do, right? Clearly, the real possibility space of human societies are vast, Right? You look back on history, see what everyone has done, right? We know that's just a fraction of what we could do. Right? So these are huge spaces that we engage with. And within the space of the possible, right? So each each point in this possibility space represents one particular state of the world. And you can then think of actions as being trajectories within these spaces. Right? trajectories in the sense that they move from one possible state of the world to another. Whenever you act, you change the world. Right? You modify history. And um, uh, the way in which um, this um, um, information processing that the news participates in, right? um, so just suggestively, they involve all of these different levels. They involve... Uh, a perception or a conception of of, of values, of of what it is that really matters, right? Right. Uh, Of of, um, uh, frames in the sense of um, a a sort of broader uh, understanding of um, uh, of um, uh, priorities, if you like. Um, And um, So so we'll we'll go through these uh, a little bit more systematically, uh, focusing on the um, um, uh, on on what the news does in terms of um, uh, forming uh, of of, of essentially taking uh, events that 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 happen out in the world, right, and turning them into meaningful narratives, right. And it's that act of turning them into narratives that involves all of these uh, different levels. Of cognition. So the first stage of the news um, provides you with uh, simply, uh, you know, evidence of what happens. And this evidence is often very um, um, sort of, um, you know, direct and relatively unprocessed initially. Uh, That may not always be the case, of course, but if you take something like a bomb explosion, you don't immediately have an agenda. Basically, they show you. Look, you know, glass in the street. Uh, there's uh, people injured. There's ambulances and so on. And um, um, the uh, television, because of the the images that now become very rapidly available to very large audiences. Here, for instance, what you're seeing is not the attack itself, but the dust from the explosion reaching pedestrians passing downtown Oslo on the 22nd of July. right So this is um, the, um, uh, the attacks against one of the uh, uh, government buildings, and uh, very quickly, um, cell phone photographs and video was relayed to the world's uh, uh, news outlets. Um, this information is very quickly situated, so that part of what the news do for you is they frame the event for you. They say this is happening in Norway. Show you where Norway is happening in Oslo. Uh, situates it geographically. Um, now with Google Earth, they can show you exactly which buildings were attacked, uh, and um, uh, and it, it 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 kind of situates you. Puts you into the position of uh, being a witness of an event, right? So television very powerfully positions the viewer uh, in the um, uh, in 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 the moment of action, Um, and um, 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 so we call this the teleillusion effect in the sense that. Television is a highly produced medium. It's, the, it's, it's expensive and complicated to produce. The production teams that actually produce the news. Uh, but the, uh, the surface of uh, television news is uh, very uh, carefully um, um, framed as uh, an anchor. Uh, Mark Turner, who will speak here later in the quarter, Right, he'll go more into this blended joint attention with the anchor. There's a bunch of stuff we're working on there. Uh, but basically, you know, you're drawn in, and you say, "Look, you know, you're here with me in the studio. I'm going to take you to Oslo now, and here we are, right? I'm going to start out with a, an overview perspective, right? Here you see, you know, the, the island itself. You, you, you see the city, uh, the country, the city. You kind of zoom in, and you get the kind of big picture. Uh, we're going to take you to more of a witness perspective, where you, um, um, where you're sort of you're watching." right? And you're, you're, you're kind of on location, but you're not part of it. And then slowly that kind of merges into a more participatory and emotionally engaging perspective where you become part of the crowd, and you are grieving with the others. And television does that simply with camera work, right? Positions the viewer at the point of the lens, and um, Cognitively, we, we infer who we are based on what we see. Okay? So, if you are positioned here with the camera with everyone else, uh, then uh, uh, the, uh, the inference behind that is that, well, if this is what I'm seeing, I must be one of these people. If I put it put it simply. Um, Russian television makes, incidentally, very heavy use of this uh, in their coverage. They sh- they use a lot of lipstick cameras where. Um, um, the uh, footage is shown, you know, running with refugees, it's emotionally very gripping. American television tends to be sort of a bit more distant. These are part of the sort of large-scale changes, of course, that we can do data mining on. Now, um, um, one of the um, uh, key issues uh, once, once you see the power of television, is of course who is represented, who, whose voices are actually heard, and um, uh, this sort of uh, you know uh, selection bias, if you like, right? Uh, the, uh, the 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 selection of what part of the population is actually invited to come into television and uh, speak, you know, have their voices be heard, have their emotions be heard, right? Varies uh, dramatically between countries. Uh, one of the things that happened in Norway after this attack was very, very quickly victims' voices were invited into the mainstream media. And um, uh, they were, in a sense, you know, taken seriously as uh, equal interlocutors, right? They are given uh, camera time. Um, <coughs> again, Mark will go into sort of how visitors... Uh, Uh, interviewees are uh, introduced, uh, uh, you know, to viewers, right? Typically, they're not allowed to have eye contact with the audience, so-called eye contact, right? They're not allowed to look straight into the camera. Uh, They look a little bit to the side. Um, But uh, these voices are included, uh, and um, um, we are uh, immediately led to uh, feel empathy and... um, uh, feel with the victims, uh, and um, the um, the emotional significance, the emotional tone of uh, all of these voices um, uh, create a a kind of emotional tension, a kind of emotion potential. So, in other words, once you, television is a bit like consciousness right? The moment you put something in television, it's a bit like as if you call up something in consciousness in your own mind. If you do that, right, you make it salient, you need to respond to it in some way, it becomes uh, you know, part of your mental processing. Uh, television is with public consciousness, right? And once you put it up there, uh, 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 people respond, and, and we need in some way, that creates a kind of pressure, a kind of potential to deal with these meanings, right, in some, in some integrated way. Um, so um, um, so the news don't stop at the presentation of evidence, right? Very powerful presentation of evidence, but this is a very small part of what the news uh, really um, um, are about. And, and um, um, so the question is, uh, you know, why isn't that enough? Why can't they just tell us what happened, be done with it? right? Uh, but in fact, the news um, um, do quite a bit more work. They, uh, they need to uh, uh, assemble a narrative. And the purpose of the narrative, <clears throat> I suggest, is basically that it's through the narrative that human beings figure out how to intervene in the world, how to change the world, how to control the future. Right? So it's through narratives that we... Uh, gain control of the future, and we expect television to give us those narratives. Right? That's how, in a sense, we are empowered to take in charge, take charge of our own destiny, of the future of, of uh, our culture. Our uh. so um, um, when we first see the uh, attempt to explain right, is what I call the terrible news uh, paradigm, right? Something really awful happens, and it gets really bad coverage. Uh, People don't have a clue what really happened. Uh, What happened in Norway, for instance, was that immediately after the attack, uh, the uh, uh, news channels went wild speculating that this was a Muslim terrorist attack. So they said, uh, uh, well, uh, you know, there's this uh, mullah in Oslo. Maybe uh, he could be... uh, Uh, linked to this attack in some way. Uh, There were the uh, Mohammed cartoons. Um, this was, of course, in Denmark, but there were uh, some Norwegian papers uh, also printed the cartoons. Uh, Maybe this is the cause. Uh, Norway participated in the bombing of Libya uh, 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 with NATO. Uh, Maybe this is uh, what's behind it, right? So in other words, so, so what you're doing is you're essentially casting this net where you're saying, here are a whole series of um, uh, events that uh, you know, could have caused what it is we're seeking to explain. Uh, it's, it's speculative. Uh, and, um, uh, and if you think of my little diagram here, basically uh, um, uh, what, um, the diagram that I showed earlier, that basically what, 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 what these are then measured against is what is the available evidence. Uh, the available evidence is essentially the footage, uh, 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 interviews, and um, um, it's just, uh, yeah, so I'll just go a little bit. Uh, um, so so what happened essentially was uh, within um, the first few hours, maybe within a couple of hours of uh, the initial coverage, the initial kind of um, 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 storm of speculation about Muslim extremism. Um, uh, former Ambassador Bolton was uh, interviewed on, on uh, television, for instance, saying that, uh, you know, yeah, this absolutely looked like a Muslim attack. Yeah, this is not going to be right-wing extremism and so on. They found that the guy um, had uh, released the press kit where he explained exactly why he did it right? So, uh, so uh, he'd uh, published these very charming pictures of himself, uh, some of which uh, were, you know, several years old. Um, and um, uh, uh, he had gone to a great deal of trouble to present himself uh, in a certain light, in a sense to try to control his own um, media presentation. Uh, Norwegian police was uh, quite in- inexperienced with this type of uh, sort of media professionalism, if you like. And it took them uh, weeks uh, to release uh, another photograph that the media could use. uh, So that his own press kit was, in fact, used for a long time after the attack. Uh, The attack itself uh, was um, not primarily motivated by um, um, a a desire to kill the people that he killed. uh, But uh, it was uh, a, a media campaign to create attention around his manifesto. So the whole attack was really a media event. Now, when uh, people attempt to um, explain what happened in terms of the, um, the manifesto, the explanation given by the killer, and so on, right, they say, no, we don't accept it. Right? It, was not, it was not taken to be a valid explanation of what happened. Right? Even though, in a sense, it's a 1,500-page you know, manifesto, uh, videos, photos, everything spelled out, right? Uh, but basically, the reception was, no, we don't accept this, right? This is not why it really happened. And um, what, um, what, what the media started doing is then this kind of um, uh, detailed reconstruction of what had gone wrong, in a sense, developmentally wrong. Right, like here was a case where an individual had developed in such a way that the, that his mental capacities were no longer functioning properly. Right, it was a, a, a kind of a, um, um, a, a a deviation from um, a, a, a sane uh, uh, function. And <clears throat> if you think about the the, the reasons given, so suppose uh, uh, you know what, what what the what the killer said. Right, was that. Um, um, I'm against multiculturalism in Norway. That was actually his, uh, <laughs> right? That's actually his, uh, his cause. Uh, and uh, I'm against the, specifically the inclusive policies of the Labour Party in Norway. So I went out to, you know, I, I bombed the currently ruling Labour Party's offices downtown, and w- then went to shoot these young people in uh, at a labour camp. I mean, at a Labour Party youth camp. Uh, now. Um, um, uh, this explanation isn't accepted in part because if, what, if, if your cause really was to change Norwegian society from what it is to some other direction, right, and you had ideas that you, you felt you know, might appeal to people for doing that, right, it doesn't make sense, right? It doesn't realistically further your cause to go to a youth camp and kill a fairly random number of people. Right? It, just doesn't, it just doesn't work, Right? It just isn't effective. However much you think of it as a media campaign and so on, it's, it's like it's insane. It doesn't work, right? It doesn't have the intended effect. So, so based on that, right, people felt that the real cause of this can't be found in the, uh, in the manifesto, in the killer's explanation. Uh, but instead, you go back and you look at, you know, what about his childhood? His father left him when he was young. Uh, child care services, raised the flag, but didn't interve- intervene, uh, so on and so forth, right? You go through a kind of developmental um, um, anatomical dissection of what happened. Now, it could end with that, right? So in other words, you have the presentation of the fact, the evidence. Uh, you could then develop a, a, a good explanation for why things happened, right? You'd say, no, the killer's explanation is insane, but I have another one that makes sense to me, right? Pull together all of the available evidence, sociological, psychological, material, practical, and so on, right? And say, okay, we've explained it. Now we understand, right? But the point is, that's not what the media, that's not enough, right? And specifically, it's, it's not enough under certain circumstances. And that means that when some people who are allowed to voice their views in the media are allowed to say this isn't good enough. We don't accept it. We don't accept the facts. Right? We don't want to live in a society where these things can happen. Right? So that's where you really start getting an agenda. And, and that anger, right? Uh, um, I mean, of course, we, we know it from, from the U.S. We know it from the Civil Rights Movement, right? Where you have a you know, whole series of, yeah, we have a factual situation in society, but we're saying... We're not just describing, right? We say we don't accept the facts, right? Now, the way that expressed itself in Norway was basically victims and victims' families, and they were given very wide coverage in the media. And um, um, that, um, uh, that, that 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 anger, victim stories, right? Uh, uh, right from the beginning and, and sort of accumulated systematically over time, whereas detailed interviews, investigations, reconstructions, uh, visits to people's houses, uh, you know, displaying of mementos, uh, detailed coverage of the grief of these parents. And along with the grief came very early the dissatisfaction. Um, right? How could the police allow this to happen, Right? And um, <clears throat> um, uh, the, um, the, the, the reasoning that is um, activated. Uh, this, for instance, is a quote. Could I? You, you see Norwegian is quite close to English, right? So you can actually make out some of it. Could I have saved someone, is this means. It had the means to save, right? So could I have saved someone? So the young girl thinks, you know, sort of you go back, right? And you know exactly what happened. Uh, but you also have a model of the world where you know, free will um, is, a, is, a, is an actuality uh, and where you have the power to, in a sense, think back on your own decisions and think, oh, I should have done differently. Could I have made more of a difference? Could I have saved someone? Right? And so what happens is that the focus of the news uh, slowly moves away from, you know, Presenting evidence, explaining what happened, right? Accounting for all of the evidence, to basically saying, what could we have done? Completely counterfactual, right? Massive amount of news coverage is about what never happened. But it's in the possible, it's in the realm of the possible. And part of what I'm suggesting is that as a society, what we really care about is the possible, right? That's more important than the fact, and more fundamental than the fact. Now, so um, once you um, uh, just go back to that one more step. Yeah. So so once you once you <clears throat> once you reconstructed the event, you've accounted for all of the evidence. You have a good sense of what exactly happened, where it happened, why it happened. Right. Uh, once you have that information, you can go back and you can do what we call causal surgery. Yeah, and what that what that involves is um, the identification of windows of possible intervention. So, Pearl uh, Judea Pearl has uh, uh, argued that um, in the case of causal reasoning in science, which has been his main focus, um, to um, make a claim. Uh, 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 that A causes B, make a causal claim, right? Basically requires an action. It requires you to do something. You can't just observe. You've got to do something. Uh, So you've got to, you know, sort of, like if you think of a causal diagram, you've got to connect that node to this node and that node to this node and then see what happens. It's by observing what happens in response to what you do that you can actually make a legitimate causal claim, right? It's basically the scientific method, Now, of course, in the news and with history, right, we can't do that in fact, right? We can't actually, you know, redo the Kennedy assassination and say, you know, well, what if, you know, and, you know, Oswald, Oswald had been, you know, denied access to that building, or you know, Kennedy had ridden in a covered car, or whatever it is, right? We can't actually do that. But what we can do is we can use our knowledge of the world, our knowledge of physics, our knowledge of sociology, of human cognition. Uh, right? we can do a detailed reconstruction and in our imagination we can generate a pretty good sense of what could have happened, Right, of wh- and, 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 and therefore what could have been done. Um, now, that means that these kinds of diagrams, they can be, in a sense, reused, uh, so they don't just function as a reconstruction of what actually happened, but they function as a diagram for uh, essentially doing causal surgery for uh, identifying windows where intervention would have been possible. Childcare services had been more alert if the father had a, hadn't abandoned his family. Right? At this stage, it's sort of just kind of general causal surgery, just general saying, you know, someone at some point could have made a difference. So we're not telling the father you should have, but we're just saying, yeah, it could be a factor. We could have, you know, sort of a potential place where someone could have intervened. And um, that kind of vague sense in a sense of all the different things that potentially could have been different, right, that then needs to mature into a more um, concrete, uh, effective, uh, realistic assessment of what can actually be done now. So this is costly, right? The surgery itself is costly in the sense that um, it's work to find out what exactly happened. You need a very detailed understanding to realistically uh, be able to say, uh, you know, here, uh, something could have been done differently, right? So um, um, one of the um, incidents in this particular affair, for instance, uh, involves the police uh, uh, being very delayed in getting to the island. Where the killings were taking place, and about double the number of young people were killed because of delays by the police. Right? So, um, the police was then interviewed afterwards, and they said, "Look, you know, could you uh, have done something differently? Are you willing to, in a sense, uh, you know, uh, take blame for this?" Right. And uh, I don't have time to show you all of this footage, but basically, you know, they set down their own commission, appointed their own uh, group of people, right, and they found, uh, not terribly unexpectedly, that no, you know, we did everything as best as we could, right, and, um, and you know, no, uh, no self-criticism, right, um, and and in a sense, then then no, um, um, no, no promise that we're going to do better like next time. But the anger of the parents was so powerful that this simply was not good enough. So one of the, um, just go into this a little bit more detail here, right? That in terms of um, in terms of the reconstruction of um, uh, uh, the um, the killer's uh, development, right? Uh, You have all these sort of different type of Frames framing um, the person as, um, uh, as 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 an individual, the whole lifetime of the individual, framing him as a as a citizen, or towards the end focusing on this sort of lone wolf scenario, uh, where he uh, you know plans this in detail, gets chemicals, uh, uh, you know, um, and um, 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 pretends to be a policeman. Some social engineering, so on and so forth, right? So you, you, you kind of reconstruct uh, what's going on in, in, in his mind. Um, uh, but, um, um, but other than holding him accountable by taking him to, to court, right? Uh, in Norway, there was a, a, a very strong um, sentiment that um, the, um, uh, the police response was uh, inadequate, uh, and um, uh, and that um, uh, changes need to be made, right? And, and and this is where you're really seeing the, the kind of demand for change in society uh, in a response to, you know, something doesn't work out correctly, right? So you say, you know, um, New Orleans floods, Hurricane Katrina, right? Who's responsible? Who's accountable, right? Do we as a society have the ability to actually, you know, uh, hold people who, who who could make a difference uh, accountable for it and actually make the changes that we need to make, right? So as a society now we're facing huge challenges, right? The future you know, looks really quite uncertain. Uh, do we have the ability to um, uh, you know, pull together uh, as a society and uh, figure out you know what actually needs to be done and uh, uh, hold people accountable for it and, and, and get it done, right? Uh, so this is um, again going back to this uh, possible and valuable that we're saying what was possible for someone to do, and what was, uh, you know, morally, uh, what was the, uh, sort of uh, you know kind of deontic, right? What should they have done? Um, let me just show you. Um, see if we can. Okay. Så det så jag jag tror running translation det juli 2011 En våldsam
3: tryckvåg fullst av en illkula. En enorm ödeläggelseskraft.
1: På något andrag
3: kunde enda mycket Se på politiska maktcentrum i Norge lagt i ruiner en Rescue action. omfattande collaboration helse, between
1: the police, health, brand,
3: fire, fire, firemen, som colleagues dem, helping each other out. stötte varandra på bombade arbetsplats. Samtidigt på de sig som var på världens uh, uh, senare, den mest
1: so, uh, Första melding right. om
3: angreppet blev precis registrerat klockan 17:24. Ut till en hel värld och ett My little sister just torsjapten. called home.
1: There's shooting at Utea.
3: Mobilisering av en mega och slagkraftig politistyrke inklusive 26 man frivillige, ansat i nødetater och samhällsapparat blev engagerat 22 juli. 2000 involverade bare på Ullevål. 42
1: ambulanser. 42
3: ambulances. Several
1: helicopters.
3: De frivillige hjältene blev avgörande. They
1: Volunteers were decisive for the rescue action. They saved lots of lives and they made the police action successful. Uh, this is the king, Norwegian king. They're showing this no public figures grieving. Nok en
3: dag er det bedre slutfast at der som har skilt for tap af 77 uimistelige menneskeliv,
1: 77 for at 33
3: bliver skutt, over 200 skadet, barn, ungdom, voksne påført træmer vi knapt kan forestille oss. Kommissionens opgave har vært at etablere et fakta baseret grundlag for samfundsmæssig læring av tragedien.
1: ett intens år. The job of the commission was to establish the facts for social learning.
3: Actually, the phrase for us.
1: How could we allow this to happen as a society?
3: The commission means that we now established a clear factum. Och vi därför har kunnat om 31 och konkreta disse kommer jag tillbaka på juli kunne
1: First point. The attack at to, uh, uh, of the government building could have been prevented. Right? so the, you know counterfactual reasoning, in fact, the attack did happen, Um, in order to um, uh, make any kind of assessment about, uh, you know, what, uh, what, I mean, we do this routinely, right? We all the time (laughs) assume that things could have been different. I'm just saying that, you know, if you think of our sort of the larger scientific worldview that, that, that our society also espouses, right, that's essentially a deterministic worldview. Even, even Judea Pearls, uh, whose work on causality, assumes that you, you know, learn about causality by actually intervening and doing something, right? He says, uh, 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 you know, uh, uh, free will is an illusion, right? The universe is a causal universe, right? Uh, in the news, as a profound... Uh, a deeply uh, embedded uh, assumption uh, that uh, it's not—it's not a deterministic universe. Human beings can go in, affect the course of history, and um, uh, this is—you uh, know—this is the meaning of what it is we're doing. Uh, we do have the, this power, uh, mysterious though it may be to science, uh, to uh, uh, to actually change the facts, right? Uh, and that means that this kind of thinking makes sense. The counterfactual makes sense. History wasn't inevitable. History could have been different. And because history could have been different, the future can be different. And we can control the future. Sorry, let me just go back a little. Let me to quite do that.
3: Kommissionens oppgave har varit å gjøre fremtiden. kommer jeg tilbake til. Dette er 22. juli Et intenst år. Et godt samarbeid. Vi har tolket vår oppgave som å skulle ge grunnige svar på følgende viktige spørsmål. Hva skjedde egentlig? Hvorfor gikk det det slik? Och det större so wh- Russ- to be changed vi som that la detta ske?
1: Vad happening in för future? det norska
3: ska att vi nu har etablerat ett tydligt faktum och att vi därför har kunnat samla oss om 31 och konkreta anbefalinger. Til. Detta är er juli kommissionens sex huvudfunn. Angreppet på regjeringskvartalet 22. juli kunne ha vært forhindret genom effektiv iverksettelse av allerede vedtate sikringstiltak. Myndighetene evne til å beskytte menneskene på Utøya er sviktet.
1: And Second point of the commission. The authorities' ability to protect their citizens failed on the island. Right? It's a very strong feeling in Norway a very, very kind of ingrained expectation that the government will, in fact, be able to uh, protect its citizens. Right? So, so sort of part of the pressure that uh, came out of the, uh, of the news coverage and part of, in a sense, what's reflected in the fact that this does get such a wide uh, uh, coverage in the news Right. is that uh, people very, very strongly expect to be protected from this kind of thing.
3: And, and, and
1: the commission said the police uh, intervention could have been faster, uh, the perpetrator could have been stopped earlier right? it 's all fantasy it didn 't happen right but they 're basically saying morally, we should have done better, and it was possible right so again, if you think of my little valuable possible diagram right this is in the area of the overlap of the possible and the valuable. We should have gotten
3: there. So the other... The other findings
1: are
3: somewhat less.
1: Uh, I think we can move on a little bit. Um, as a consequence of the anger even before the commission was released, almost everybody in charge at the time of the police mission stepped down, right? Head of police, um, head of uh, the, the minister in charge of the police, right? Uh, almost all of them stepped down. Uh, this one person standing is just a local police chief. Uh, and um, Norway's largest paper Uh, Called on the front page for the prime minister to resign. So there was just this deep sense of anger. In the end, there wasn't enough support for him to step down, Um, uh, and um, uh, he's still, uh, you know, in this position. Uh, But basically, um, uh, what um, um, what comes out of uh, this type of reasoning? Right? So, so in other words, what, what, what the news can do for you is uh, they can present uh, an accurate, uh, you know, fact-based uh, presentation of what really happened. Right? They could do a careful analysis of all the causes that actually led to the series of events. Uh, they can um, uh, uh, examine the series of events in terms of where is it, kind of cheap, where is it possible to intervene within the resources that we have? Human resources, financial resources, time, people's knowledge, everything, training, right? Uh, Where uh, is it actually possible to intervene if we take a somewhat larger perspective? So so in other words, sorry, let me just skip that over. Um, Um... so, so, so the 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 commission contains um, uh, sort of deontic imperatives like you know this person should have been more attentive. This person should have sought a certain kind of information that was critical uh, at the time. And it's like, is that a reasonable thing to s- tell someone? Right? Can I say, look, you know, you should have found out. Even if you didn't know, you should have known that you should, you know, that it would be useful for you to know. Can I tell you that? Right? Right? you should have acted more efficiently, right? More effectively. Given the resources available to you, you should have you know, made better use of them, right? Uh, you should have prioritized uh, the people in charge and so on, right? And, and, and then also the sort of public uh, acceptance that as a society, we make priorities, uh, we make allocations to the, to the police, we decide budgets. Um, should the police have more money? Should the staffing levels be upped? um so on and so forth right so if you if you look at these types of um of um, um, processes um, um, that um, um, um i just uh, i thought i had one more um So, um, uh, so you you can you can think of the of the news as uh, providing a kind of high speed, short term set of tools for uh, taking charge of society. Uh, in comparison, for instance, the legal system works you know very slowly. Like the actual writing of laws, uh, you know, takes uh, months, years, and stays on the books for for decades. Uh, The courts operate over periods of uh, uh, months, uh, you know, weeks, months, years, right? Uh, And only the news really provide us with that kind of feedback mechanism that allows society to correct course and to respond to events uh, uh, quickly as they happen, right? So it's really part of the governance of society. Now, this was recognized early on. You'll recall... Uh, burke and so on right, reputedly called the press the fourth estate uh, they didn 't like it at the time, right, uh, but the the power of the press uh, has been recognized as uh, you know a potent uh, social force uh, in burke 's uh, scoffing view. he felt it was uh, uh, the press that had the real power in society um, now the cognitive lesson in this um, I think is also profound in the sense that. Uh, what it suggests just by, in a sense, a field study of the kind of thinking that demonstrably is going on, right? In, in other words, if you, look at the, if, you, if you look at the actual content of news, you see that what they're doing is, yeah, they're, they're doing some, some amount of work presenting evidence. Much of what they're actually doing is putting together narratives where they explain things, where they begin to you know, express emotions about what, what really matters, and where these emotions then lead to a more detailed investigation into uh, windows of possible intervention, causal forks, and then the assignment of um, uh, resources to actually um, um, uh, deal with, um, uh, you know, to actually um, 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 carry out, carry through uh, these uh, recommendations, right? Uh, so a rational press is, in a sense, a measure of the rationality of society, the ability of society to, you know, in a meaningful way, take charge of its future. Uh, and um, um, uh, and uh, uh, let me just end by um, uh, this uh, uh, these these cognitive lessons, right? That that what we can draw out of this is that. Human cognition um, uh, uh, um, uh, operates in part by um, creating very complex uh, multidimensional uh, simulations of events. Uh, these events uh, involve huge state spaces. Uh, the fact are mer- merely points uh, in uh, our understanding of, uh, uh, of uh, reality, and uh, that our broader understanding involves... Um, um, the uh, you know a, a space in a sense for for uh, uh, the ability of the individual to uh, allocate resources uh, and uh, in, in, you know with, with, with a great deal of, of, of precision uh, uh, apply these resources to the course of events the course of history in a way that changes history right that is our implied social model that is embedded in the news and it functions as a kind of social consciousness, as a kind of, uh, you know, uh, collective information processing device, right? I mean, not, not independently, right? But as it, it basically facilitates uh, our ability to think together. Um, so um, I suggest we uh, just open it up for discussion now. Um, um, I, I, I haven't looked at... Um, uh, Uh, all of the ways in which this process can be, in a sense, appropriated by certain groups, right? Here I've just tried to show that Norway is a fairly small society, extremely transparent, right? Scores on top of these sort of governance uh, uh, statistics and so on. Uh, So in some ways, uh, what happens in Norway tends to, uh, you know, to some degree, reflect what at least a very large number of people are interested in, in seeing. All right, I think I'll end there. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, uh, Francis. And so we'll open up for question and answer. Uh, One of the things that also I hope will come up during question and answer, if not, I can plant the seed now, is just some of the differences between U.S. news coverage and some of the Norwegian news coverage, which we discussed uh, previously, and then also some of the combination between uh, between the – early work that you showed and the analysis of right. the Norwegian massacre. So uh, And so, for example, how the tool can be used to analyze specific events. Uh, you mentioned the difference in discourse between uh, Romney and, and Obama for framing of leadership. And, and so those are issues I think would be use, useful, interesting for uh, the audience. But why don't we start with a question uh, here? And also, we need people to speak into the microphone. So if you could uh, come up here, or I'll just uh, distribute it.
4: Hello. Um, thank you. This was absolutely excellent. Um, I couldn't help thinking as an American citizen of the correlation between what happened in Norway with the current repeated mass murders that we've had here. That's right. With the Sikh temple, and the people going to the movie, and the whole, po- or even going back to when the New York Times and other news media humanized the 9-11 victims. I was thinking, is there a possibility for this kind of um, causal surgery to be done to humanize or put faces on the people who are dying to possibly change, not ban handguns or, I don't want to get into that, but at least have people, the powerful lobbies think about, hmm, maybe we should think about mental health issues. Maybe we should think, especially when the people uh, leave trails of what they intend to do before they do it. Um, maybe we need to have some background checks and use the you know the social media the the IT that we have to find out a little bit more before we allow people to buy thousands and thousands, and multi-thousand rounds of ammunition online, or buy so many assault weapons. Is there a possibility that you can use this as well to affect change right. in policy? Right,
1: right. I mean, I, I think essentially what you're asking is. Um, um, uh, you know, is it possible for us to open up the media so that these feelings that already are out there, you know, actually can be heard, right? So that so that uh, uh, part of what you need in order to have social change, right, you actually need to have people speak, the voices need to be heard, so that the 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 the, the most important part of media reform, or or even in a sense uh, uh, of of. A response to these repeated killings,, right, is not to simply pound on the table and say, "We, we need X, Y, Z, right?" in terms of gun control or whatever,?" Right? Uh, but that uh, if you approach this through the media, if you think of the media as the way in which society uh, you know, brings uh, issues uh, to the table and, and begins to, in a sense, create what I was calling an emotion potential. Right? It creates a kind of pressure, right? That is kind of latent there and that everyone shares we need to deal with this in some way right so so to to, to create that kind of pressure which in turn can then you know bring people's attention to the issue and then one can be, begin to think how, how as a society do we actually want to deal with this right but as long as the suffering is, is suppressed then it kind of uh, the, the issue doesn't even appear in a sense right so so somehow if you look at the aurora shooting for instance yeah you know, there was even a visit you know, to the hospital of one of the victims, right? But the way that was covered was that it was the film star that came to the hospital. So you cover the film star. This is just celebrity news. start with
0: and then we'll move our way
1: back.
2: I'm not a cognitivist, I'm a an historian and it would be helpful for me if you could clarify um why what you're referring to is cognitive in nature because I think for me the the connotations of the cognitive are perhaps uh, biological or innate or trans-historical and it seems uh, to me that you the the, the process you're describing of how uh, news functions and changes and so on could be described not as cognitive at all, but as simply uh, narrative. You know, this is the way we currently tell stories, and there have been many different ways, and there probably will be many different ways in the future. So I don't really understand the cognitive reference point.
1: Good, good. Yeah, so um, um, one one meaning of the word cognitive, right, is uh, the computer model of um, the human mind uh, that uh, kind of... Mm. There was a sort of what I call the classical computationalism, which is basically a synthesis that arose you know, in the 50s between um, uh, the kind of rudimentary knowledge people had of the neurons. Uh, they thought they operated sort of as logic gates Uh, um, uh, computability theory that gave rise to uh, computers and the actual fact of, you know, that you could engineer computers, right? So people felt, people were just, it was such a successful (laughs) synthesis, at least on the surface, right? That people felt like finally we've cracked the mystery of the human mind, right? And that made people think that everything, sort of cognitive, everything the mind was doing was this kind of, uh, uh, you know, Uh, processing of very low dimensional representations, zeros and ones, and you got all these cognitive models that kind of worked like that, right? So what I'm suggesting is that, well, we need to open up cognitivism, right? It does, in fact, include narrative, right? Narrative is a a deep fact of uh, human cognition, right? Uh, So by cognitive, I don't mean to imply uh, these older models. In fact, I think now it's, you know... Pretty much clear that that synthesis, although it was intellectually very appealing at the time, uh, failed to grasp what the mind is really doing. Right? No way it, I mean, so if you look at, you know, the progress of artificial intelligence is basically, if I may say so at MIT, it's basically been a flop. Uh, um, the, the big hopes of artificial intelligence, uh, you know, uh, touring thinking very early on, you just send computers to school, And uh, they'd pick up language, they'd pick up, you know, all they needed to know, right? Uh, A three-year-old still understands language far better than our most, you know, vast uh, computer system, right? Uh, So so there's something profound about human cognition that we didn't grasp in classical computationalism, but we need to take it on. We need to say, yeah, look, this is real cognition. It includes emotion, right? It includes the full uh, multi-multi-modal representational system, right? Only a fraction of that makes it into television, but even that fraction is very, very powerful.
0: And and if I can just build on that a a little bit, (coughs) so uh, say we have, A lot of cognitive scientists interested in the kind of issues of backstage cognition, say figure-ground relationships or force dynamics, or describing kind of what's the impetus. How can you describe the kind of way that we understand these narratives as one thing causing force in another that we inherit from our experience of motor sensory actions? And so the way that we describe, say, the causal reason for something as a force that causes something to fall over or something to change, that a lot of those kind of processes for understanding narrative have some some systematic kind of cognitive descriptions. And so the idea is just that it's not a kind of deterministic or say necessarily computational view of cognition, but just that we can start to look at some systematic, uh, semantic aspects of figurative thinking or poetic thinking. And so that's just uh, just to give a couple of examples of specifically this kind of cognitive semantics view of cognition.
2: Hi. Um, This is sort of uh, building on that first comment, but I wondered... So I think it's it's really true. I love the phrase that you just use, emotion potential. That these these stories in the news sort of you know ramp up our interest, our empathy for the victims or you know whoever is featured in the story. Um, and I wonder if you've thought at all about, th- as well as the sort of potential to call for accountability, this sort of natural maybe sort of dulling effect, wherein bringing the narrative to a close in the media. For people who are at home it, experiencing it in this mediated way, does it sort of also bring their empathic experience to a close and sort of dull the need for actual reaching out into the world and responding? Does it sort of bring them full circle and maybe close out the potential for later action?
1: Right, right. So. I mean, I think, I think there's a lot of issues in, that, in the area that you raised, right? Because basically, we're, in a sense, talking about the sort of management of emotions of millions of people. It's a huge topic, right? Uh, even at the level of the individual newscasts, it has a kind of syntagmatic order where you get, you know, big news in front, right? And then you get, you know, sort of... Big domestic news, and then slowly it sort of winds down. You get some sports, and you get some weather, and then you get a feel good story at the end. Right? It's managed. Right? It's managed. Your emotions are being managed. Right? Everybody does it. Right? So that's a huge issue. Uh, did you just have a quick
5: comment to that? or Just a comment. Uh, when you say managed, it sounds like uh, at some, some level there's some kind of mass illusion. Involved too, or the possibility that uh, television actually propagates uh, illusory—the uh, uh, agreement of large numbers of people on things that are, as you've said several times, uh, quite illusory.
1: Right. So I—I uh, I mean, I think uh, that's clearly correct, and there are uh, examples where, in a sense, what I suggested with, with the tele-illusion effect, right? I suggested that what you see on television, we have a tendency to. Uh, interpret that as if we're really witnessing, like they like to call it eyewitness news, right? Even the word television means, you know, from, from, from Greek and Latin, right, distant vision, it isn't. Is it healthy? Right, so, 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 so clearly the potential for this kind of power to be abused is enormous. So part of what we're facing as a modern society, right? I mean, we could disinvent television, right? But short of that, it's like, yeah, this is there, the power is there. And we do need to be aware of the dangers, right? I mean, the primary danger we saw right at the beginning of the media explosion, is the Nazis, right? Masters in producing illusions, very, very powerfully.
0: And also, some people might remember, last semester we had Otto Santana here actually used this tool to do his uh, analyses of uh, biases against Latinos in, in the contemporary news. And so, there's was looking at issues such as framing, the camera position, placing people behind the screens. So, there was a lot of look at the kind of visual, kind of multimodal discourse where it might not be obvious bias say, at the textual level, but you find bias when you start to begin to analyze. Uh, framing, you know, visual framing, cinematic framing across different uh, news items.
1: Right. So, if I uh, just finish up on that, just to, in, in case people weren't here, right, that Santa Ana, for instance, shows that you know uh, Latinos tend to be shown behind chain-link chain link fences. I don't need to say anything bad about them, but they're shown behind again and again. they shown behind chain-link fences. Right. They are other,
6: right? Visually communicated. You don't need to say a thing. Please. I guess I'm wondering, have you seen? much um, possibility in the structure of the narrative um, inside of the news like I guess for me as you were walking through um, the, the ordering of the news I could see possibility in the ordering itself um, and where there could be places where you might, in fact, turn to the audience and say, speak among yourselves or break the fourth wall or begin to start to do these interesting things in the, the process of telling the story. Um, and I'm wondering, have you seen much um, sort of expansiveness in the way in which the stories being told vis-a-vis media, and so that's sort of one thing. And then, how do you handle what stories aren't told? Like, I keep thinking about Keystone XL, and I'm wondering, in, what, in, in, in your sort of analysis of the news, what happens with the stories that don't make it to the news?
5: Right,
1: right. So, I mean, the first uh, question you raise uh, is clearly is, is something that a number of us here are concerned about, uh, uh, we now have the technology for creating a kind of visual media uh, that is, uh, you know, a, a, a sort of a you know barefoot grassroots uh, civil journalism that can involve millions of people. And much of it, in fact, already does. I was citing in to some of you earlier that uh, the Pew Research Group recently did a study where they found a third of searches on YouTube are news-related. Uh, so there's a massive uh, interest in, you know, non-mainstream news. And uh, um, uh, the, 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 the potential sources we have for high-quality news, right? I, real eyewitness news, in a sense, right? Uh, is uh, completely exploding, right? We don't have a framework. We don't have a platform online, right, for really pulling together stories and adding what I feel like both of us see in a sense, right? That, that, that storytelling, the way you sequence things, the way you frame them, what values and so on, right? That whole kind of active engagement with the facts, right? We need to develop tools for, for, for actually accomplishing that and for allowing people to create news actively that have a visual component. Now you could do, you could do a bit with Twitter and so on, right? But to really you know, present the kind of uh, 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 you know, quite careful, demanding work uh, that, that, that mainstream media are professionally good at doing, right, that requires building something that doesn't currently exist.
7: Given your third point, the human information processing routinely resulting in effective interventions, um, I, I hope maybe somewhere in the world that's true, it just doesn't seem to be very true here. I mean we either get the we, we may get the Patriot Act but we don't get background checks at gun shows And I mean to me it it just seems that that it's managed news but it's beyond managed by the news, it's by special interests. Is this is this done in a pure form anywhere? Is this working anywhere? I mean it certainly isn't working here. And you know, when you, you when you talk about the tools, what would those tools look like? I mean we have we have lots of independent news sources and bloggers and so forth. You know, so it would seem that we've got the news streams and the potential to affect you know, effective interventions, but they're being drowned out by something, or, or what would those tools be?
1: Right, right. So, I mean, um, uh, you know, sort of one objection against social change has always been, you know, you're just, a, you're just a few people, you know, what difference can you make, right? So, of course, the answer is that, you know, no change in history ever started in any other way, right? That is how social change happens. Uh, it's got to start with a small number of people. Um, the... Um, Mainstream media are, uh, I mean, everyone knows, they are intensely controlled by a very small number of, of players, right? They're owned by a tiny handful number of companies. I mean, <laughs> you know, even a hand is starting to be exaggerated now. And uh, uh, there's no question that, uh, you know, as a sort of uh, at the communication level, right, uh, uh, American democracy is a fiction, right? It, it, it is not is a fiction, right? It is, uh, it's not an effective uh, democracy, right? There's elections and so on, but in the, in the role of the press, as I'm suggesting, as a vital component in uh, responding to the, 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 the issues that arise in society, uh, allowing these emotions to come to the surface and, and actually become part of the kind of this sort of emotion potential that, that demands a resolution and so on, it just isn't working, right? So we just need to be realistic about that. We need to see exactly what's going on, right? And then we need to see within the facts that we have, where are the possibilities for intervention? We need to do causal surgery in the situation itself, right?
2: Um, This may build a little bit on what you just started uh, talking about in terms of... uh Who's behind mainstream media? Uh, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about um, the sources and how you how you chose them for 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 this case study, and and whether you saw any differences between. I think you had mentioned the United States and, and Norway, but also maybe between news channels. Like I noticed you had ABC and CNN, and the reason why I'm asking that I guess is uh, twofold. One is that we've been using some words here like production, management, um, and it, it, it raises the question for me of, well, who are the producers behind this? Who Who is managing? You know, How are these conventions being produced? So I'd be interested in hearing a little bit more about the producer side, the source side, and, and, and how you think about that. Um, and then I guess the other reason I'm asking that question is that for me, um, as a literary and media historian, I think when I um, think about narratives, I... I I always see the competition between different sources, so there's there's a difference in narrative as well as what as what rolls up and is is common. Um, but it may be that approaching from a, a cognitive point of view, similar questions is precisely that is sort of rolling up what, what is more common. And so I guess I'm asking um, a simple question, which is just what's the scope and how did you think about sources? But then also uh, opening up that question to um, you know. I guess, talking about methodology a little bit and, and what are you ultimately looking for? At, at what, right. what
5: point is, is
1: that right. of goal? Um, part, of the, part of our reason for wanting to create a global collection is that within American media, there's a lot of uniformity. So it's not the case that everything is covered the same, right? But a, a very large numbers of, number of, of, of stories are really covered in more or less the same way. And by uh, creating a global collection, we want to create, in a sense, a, a, a more kind of uh, um, explicit, uh, demonstrable uh, sense of the type of variety of narratives, the ways in which stories can be told, uh, and to just show it's fact. right? In other words, you have the actual data. So that's why we need a global data set. And, uh, and, and, and I haven't focused, at the moment, on these comparative studies, right? We started a little bit looking at um, the invasion of, uh, of Georgia, uh, uh, the South Ossetian invasion by Russia uh, in uh, August of 19, uh, 1908. And uh, I mean, uh, 2008. And um, uh, what you see there is that, uh, you know, 100 million Russians are convinced that this is the humanitarian intervention. That's the story. Everything is understood in terms of that. Right, um, 500 million people in the West are convinced that this is evil Russia on the prowl again, expansionist, uh, 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 imperialist, uh, uh, you know, uh, evil Russians. <laughs> right, and uh, and how, how can you create such consensus across hundreds of millions of people? Right, and in part you, you, you can do it by not telling the different stories to that population. So in other words a population just gets one story. They get it over and over again from multiple sources, right? And so part of what we want to do then is to say, well, can we create a multi-perspective news so that we can assemble, you know, what different media spheres have to say about a particular event?
8: Um, this is kind of a long question. I once read an article about um, hierarchical media um, forms in... Um, authoritarian regimes, and in this case more specifically in, in China. And the argument goes that there are two layers of media in China one being the central government controlled agency, that you know, news agent that mainly eulogizes and beautifies everything, um, and the second being the more localized and um, provincial news agent. And it's generally the latter one that exposes government corruption and food safety issues or social um, unrest, that kind of stuff. And the interesting thing is uh, whenever these kind of stuff are exposed, they they generally flare up very quickly. They thrive for a short period of time before they get suppressed and crushed. And once again, we get the uniform eulogy um, at the central Level um, and the argument the, the article explains that um, it has to do with the power structure in China because the central government collects um, tax it has um, absolute access to tax while power and military is dispersed nationwide so the central agency really want um, these local media to sort of watch out what's going on on these local levels sort of being it's um, Localized monitors that supervise what's going on, but whenever things get really serious, it would be suppressed um, so that you know unrest doesn't happen nationwide. So I think um, it's sort of in in this process that the cognitive um, mechanism that you were talking about seems to be um, ended very abruptly. So I was just wondering if you ever considered how. Um, media intersects with politics and how that form of interplay can change this type of you know causal um, intervention and you know whether media can bring about social um changes thanks
1: right yeah uh yeah thank you for that question and for the for that view on um, the dynamics in china clearly this is uh uh, you know a a a complex issue that requires a whole team of researchers to look at uh, uh, the specific situations in each country. Uh, there's, of course, no doubt that uh, politics has a massive influence uh, on the media. Uh, but uh, in many countries, it's, um, it's, an, it's, a, it's a, a somewhat better matched uh, competition so that the media have some ability to stand up to politicians. Uh, as we saw in Norway, for instance, you, know, you have the largest paper in Norway calling outright for the prime minister's resignation. Uh, and that generated you know a whole series of consequences. Then, and in the end, he didn't go. But uh, uh, but clearly, the media do have a power. Um, so, um, um, uh, the, uh, the the goal of my lecture was really to um, uh, to, to, to suggest that uh, television as a technology has the capacity to mediate. Uh, a, a cognitive process among millions of people, right? Uh, politicians have the ability to prevent that from actually happening, right? By suppressing, by leaving stories out. I didn't get to that question of yours, right? But that's one way of just saying, you know, becomes a, a non-issue because it never rises into public consciousness, uh, right? So, so the uh, television is a kind of display space, that commands our attention uh, that is analogous to the function of consciousness in the
5: individual mind. Yeah. Um, with your indulgence, uh, I'm going to quote a poet on causality. We invent ourselves, we invent ourselves out of ingredients we didn't choose by a process we can't control. The female impersonator and the sadistic marine can each trace himself back to the same stern or weak father. The baby on the floor cannot be traced forward to anything. So I think that's a little bit closer to what real actual causality is. My question doesn't have anything to do with that. Um, there's a site online called Bag News Notes, which takes n- news photographs and then and. Analy- an- does an analysis of them, and invites readers to also do an analysis of them. So you're looking at a, a news photograph and saying, well, what does this, what does this imply? Right. What does this look like? Why is that halo above the president's head? Why are these people here dressed in, in work clothes when they're not working? All of that kind of stuff. Have you, have you looked at that site at all? I haven't,
1: but I'll, uh, yeah. like news I'll check it out. Yeah. 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 Thank you.
0: <clears throat> so we got three more questions
9: so it's a really uh rich talk and question and answer session um i'm both uh far more optimistic and more pessimistic than you are i think about some of the some of the stuff that you're looking at. So on the one hand, I'm not sure that we need to invent new platforms. Uh, I think that people are appropriating the existing platforms that we have in the early stages of the mass growth of read-write digital media literacy, where we have an explosion of uh, people producing audiovisual content, especially video content, uh, self-producing news. Um, And we see that, of course, circulated mostly in spaces like... Like YouTube, but that's not a new—it's not a new process, but it's massified to a degree that's—that's that's really, really interesting. Um, and so then, then the, the question is, um, you know, the problem is that most people still aren't getting most of their uh, televisual flow from those spaces, although that is slowly starting to shift. Um, and of course, we have to bracket the questions of massive access inequality to digital production tools and skills. Um, I think we're starting to see some interesting transformations in TV news and you see that in spaces like Al Jazeera's program, The Stream, so the model being uh, that you more systematically seek and incorporate uh, video content that's produced by uh, people who who are on the ground or in the case of The Stream, people who are participating directly in social movement spaces and then rebroadcast that out via the satellite platform so that you shift from having you know tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of people. Getting the multifaceted perspective from social movement participation to millions or hundreds of millions of people having that experience, um, so I guess i'm just I, I want to challenge you a little bit on um, the the idea that that people aren't already doing the type of process that I think you're you're trying to urge us uh, to get involved in, and so that would then require us to shift from thinking about how do we build new platforms to how do we spread critical digital read-write media literacies so that more people produce uh, video content that doesn't just mirror the narrative forms and the visual framings that they absorb from traditional TV newscasting but produce this other interesting sort of genre, which is first-person perspectival on participation in, in in movements if what we're talking about is how do we get to social transformation from from this massification of, of video production
1: right right so I mean I I, I don't really see um, these points in a sense as uh, I mean I, I in a sense I, I completely agree with you right that there's clearly a lot happening and and, and, and surely more happening than I realize uh, um, uh, one way to think about this idea of platforms is uh, you know, to lower the threshold for actually engaging with this type of work, right? Um, so, uh, so, I, I, I mean, I, I, again, I think uh, sort of, you know, it, it sort of a, requires causal surgery to know, you know, what exactly is the state of affairs? What would be the, the cheapest and most efficient way to intervene, right? That's, a, that's in a sense, a, a mixture of empiricism and imagination, right? Uh, and clearly, uh, we don't have all the answers.
0: Right, and the, Uh, To to intervene, just a a brief moment. I think some of the work of Charlotte Lindy uh, uh, recently is quite telling related to some of these questions because she did work early on about the construction of life stories and narratives of personal experience, but more recently, institutional narratives. And so that means issues like who has the authority to convey institutional narratives? Uh, How do institutional narratives Uh, How can they be disseminated within the institution, outside of the institution? And there's a kind of process behind which these institutional narratives are constructed and perpetuated. And and so I think it's great work coming out of sociolinguistics that helps to look at some of these issues of authority and kind of political hierarchy that's intrinsic in the questions that the audience has been asking. So we have two more questions. So I
10: thought this was a really wonderful presentation. But all throughout it, I couldn't help but think that this is all predicated on the assumption that people are going to be watching television news, and they're going to be watching it from the beginning of a program to the end of a program, and they're going to be primarily getting their news from this. And I really thought about how TV news is decontextualized. For example, um, most of my work is about fandom and the fan community, and as you can imagine, fans of comic books were shocked and horrified and immediately on the story of the shooting happening in Aurora. Um, And, of course, initially people watched the news because their friends who had been in the theater nearby were unreachable for whatever reason. But then um, those pieces of news sort of got decontextualized. People took them away from the anchors. People began to sort of construct their own discussion about this stuff within the space, which partook in TV news but was not purely determined by that. And I was just wondering whether... This may be totally outside of your scope, but I was wondering whether you had any thoughts on, on the way that... Um, TV recirculates now, even without making your own video or whatever, but contextualizing.
1: Right, right. I mean, that to my mind does connect with 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 what we talked about earlier, right? In the sense that the ability to reuse, the ability to resequence, uh, the ability to take this piece and put it together with the other piece, right? That is uh, production, Uh, and. um, the uh, I, I I I sort of was very tempted here to show you all this um, um, uh, this. Uh, so I don't know if I can make it all full screen, but basically, you know, if you recall this. Uh,
9: an information war to foreign media outlets, including RT. Can we turn this up week the screen? The Secretary a bit. of State asked Congress for more cash to step this up America's a, 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 efforts to get its message across. A key guy named Shigian reports from Washington.
1: War
10: no declared. The U.S. Watching, is now officially uh, in an you know, information battle uh, the with foreign media, media, which provide alternative views on world news. Views which often run in contrast to the coverage of events by the U.S. mainstream media.
4: We are in an information war, and we are losing that war. I'll be very blunt in my assessment. Al Jazeera is winning. The Chinese have opened up a global English language and multi-language television network. The Russians have opened up an English language network. I've seen it in a few countries, and it's quite uh, instructive. We are cutting back. The um, BBC is cutting back. Some five years ago, Western media outlets, including BBC and CNN, had a near monopoly
10: in the coverage of world news. Things have changed since, changed since then.
1: Um, right, so, um, so other players are, uh, are entering the area, and uh, there's clearly also uh, you know, massive room for a kind of more democratizing of the whole news experience where people assemble out of pieces. So what I was calling for was, in a sense, you know, could we facilitate that, right? And how do we do that? What's the best way to achieve that, right?
0: Here we have time for one more question.
11: Uh, so there's been a fair amount of uh, energy and, and also funds that's been kind of directed towards um, developing and designing uh, interactive media, um, journalistic interactive media that are they're necessarily incomplete uh, systems, right? Because to, to design an entire historical system, including every variable and factor would be, I think, a, a computational impossibility at this point, with the exception of our brains, perhaps. Although, who knows? Um, and I, and of course, those are necessarily rhetorical, because what you choose to leave out of the system, or what you choose to include, or how you choose to allow interaction with those variables, are, are going to, you know, inform the way you might interact with it and what what you might get out of the story. Um, but I'm wondering if you see that as a viable way for engaging in, in the idea of a ca- of kind of counterfactual narratives, um, you know entering a simulation, engaging with that simulation, um, changing the outcome of an event based on the variables that have been presented to you by this you know, journalistic game of sorts. Um, is, that a, is that a viable option for kind of in da- engaging in these sort of uh, counterfactual uh, history narratives?
1: Right, I mean, I, th- I think we'd have to speak a little further so I fully understand uh, you know, your uh, insights into this. And uh, I mean, I, I would sort of say that almost anything is better than the mainstream media, to put it that way, right? (laughs) The threshold really isn't that high because we get things just served, you know, completely professionally produced by a tiny number of people, right? So it's not hard to make an improvement on that. Now, which constraints uh, uh, would remain in any system that someone builds, right? Uh, We should take that seriously and think of what type of, uh, sort of um, ecosystem that needs to be constructed, right? To really allow storytelling, but that's something human beings have been working on for very long, right?
0: So I wanna thank everybody for uh, coming, also for engaging the kind of particular yeah, cognitive uh, perspective. Here again, it's a kind of cognition that's distributed across devices, across people, situated in specific local context, uh, as well as embodied, a- affective, emotional, Uh, gestural discourse like we saw here. And so uh, hopefully it also suggests a kind of different stream in cognitive research that can intersect with some of the kind of participatory uh, work that people are interested in here and the kind of civic engagement as well as historical analysis. Uh, So anyway, let's thank uh, Francis one more time for coming. Thank you. Thank you.